Okay, so you you have watched all of The Deuce, which just came back for its third season? Yeah, I mean, I haven't watched the premiere that was two nights ago, but I watched the first two seasons. It's, like, kind of gone under the radar. Like, I didn't know that it was coming back. I just saw it, like, on avclub.com, the recap, and I'm like, oh, The Deuce, that still exists. But um, (laughs) I have a question, which I never, ever got a straight answer for. I don't watch the show, and I've always wondered, like, why did they double cast James Franco? Like, is there any thematic to have two James Francos in that? Yeah, he plays identical twins. Sure, but why does there have to be identical twins? Oh, it's it's those are real people. Those are real historical figures. Oh, so there were real historical tw- identical twins who were like key to the. They're basically the, D- David Simon and Pelicanos, George Pelicanos. Their source were these identical twins who ran this bar that was at the nexus of like the mob and porn and all this like Times Square shit. And one of them was like a more responsible, and one of them was this like degenerate rap scallion. I always said the deuce is the show so nice they cast James twice. <laughs> so welcome to the show, everyone. This is literally everything. Back with another episode for you. This is going to be which? What number is this going to be? The sixth episode we, yeah. we release. Right on. So thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, I do want to say, like at the outset, we should give some contact info for ourselves because we haven't really shared that. So. If you want to write in questions or feedback for the show, send us an email at literallyeverythingpod at gmail.com. And make sure if you're a listener to follow us. Twitter, it's it was hard. It was pretty hard to get a, a screen name because it's too long for a handle in Twitter, but it's lit underscore every underscore pod. And then what's the Instagram handle? The Instagram one is the longer version. It's literally underscore everything underscore podcast. Because you can make it as long as you want on Instagram. So follow us there, write us there, contact us, let us know what you'd like to hear us talk about. If you have any questions about things we have talked about, um, we'd really appreciate that. Yeah, thanks to everyone who's been listening and feeding back. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so it is, we are recording on the anniversary of 9 11 today. We do have an episode that is themes, uh, that has themes relating to a lot of the same issues, the Middle East, the modern Middle East politics, things like that. So in contrast with our last show, which was very much about the European past, we're going to be talking about the modern Middle East today. And the first segment is going to be led by Ethan. Why don't you tell us what we're going to talk about in the first segment? Tuesday, which is September 17th, there's going to be an election in Israel, mm-hmm. Israel. and so I'm going to talk about that election and what's at stake and the implications, why is there an election happening, so on. Right on. And then in the second segment, I'm going to present a book that I recently read. It's called Jihad, Radicalism, and the New Atheism by Mohammed Hassan Khalil. Um, it's came out a year ago, I think, and it's very interesting. It's a look at the idea of jihad and martyrdom and war in general in Islamic thought throughout history, and then it compares that to Osama bin Laden's and like ISIS, like the, the radicalist view of jihad, and then compares both of those things to the new atheists view of Islam and its doctrines on, on war and martyrdom and all those key concepts um, and sets forth a, a pretty interesting argument about all those different variables um, with some, I think, really interesting implications for the way we talk about religion in general in a secular culture. So I'm looking forward to discussing all those topics with you. But let's get into Israel first. Okay. Israel first. It's like yeah. America first. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, and as Max and I have discussed before, we aim here not just to you know, summarize the news, even when we're talking about current events. Mm-hmm. You know, we're trying to approach people who are literate enough in, in the news, and we'll give you as much context as is necessary to hopefully support more of an analysis um, that, that draws on our scholarship or our, our expertise. For those who don't know, I've lived in Israel on and off for my studies and other reasons uh, through some different years of my adult life, year here, half year there, so on. And my PhD in my primary field of studies is Hebrew literature, Israeli, Israeli Hebrew literature. So besides that, though, I'm just a news junkie like, like anyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're a news junkie, it's worth it to learn Hebrew just to follow the Israeli press because it's, it's like so much more exciting the way they insult each other and all those things. 
Nice. But so, you know, in, in the U.S., Israel is always a hot-button issue, and all the more so recently with the way that the relationship with Israel has been politicized and, and the changing politics of that relationship under Donald Trump as president and American Jews' relationship to Israel or to American support for Israel is seems to be at issue in, in some new ways. So our entry point to Israel is often based on like what's going on with the Palestinians and with the occupation and Gaza, and that's our window. Yeah. However, this election is, is not happening because of the conflict. Hold on I mean, one second. I, I, have, I have one question before, just so you could explain yeah. to me. Didn't they just have an election earlier this year, Ethan? Why are they having an election next week if they just had one? Great question, Max. I, I can answer that. Okay. Um, they had an election in April, and, and it's, it's kind of like what's going on in, in Britain. There's Even though there, there have been elections roughly every three years in Israel, they're always called by the parliament. They don't like take place on time. They're always called early. There's been very unsteady coalitions that have been formed between the larger center-right party, the Likud, uh, which is led by the Prime Minister Netanyahu, and different small parties on the far right, or religious parties, or sometimes center-left parties. Mm-hmm. And those, there's not really a majority consensus on a number of really important issues. Surprisingly, the conflict not being one of them, but there's a bunch of other issues where you can't really cobble together a majority on this issue without everyone disagreeing about this other issue and it falling apart. So the case in point now is that from Netanyahu's party moving to the right, there were, you could cobble uh, a coalition of a majority, which is they have 120 members in their parliament. So you need 61. He could, he got over 61 members of parliament to be willing, or sorry, I should say to be on the right wing, which is, would seem to be a victory. But one of those parties which is led by a really interesting character named Avigdor Lieberman, who I'll talk about more at length. After the election was over, and this kind of surprised everyone, Lieberman said, I will not join the government if you have ultra-Orthodox religious parties in the government. And if you remove the ultra-Orthodox, then the right wing does not have a majority. And if you remove Lieberman's party, which is a far-right party that caters to Russian-born Israelis, you also don't have a right-wing majority. And so Netanyahu would have had to get into a, a unity government with the center left or call for new elections and hope that the right wing parties do better. And so he elected for the latter. And that's partially because all the right wing parties, so not just the Likud, but there's two or three or four parties to his right. And, and, and with that right wordness, I include the ultra Orthodox, have yeah. said that they would support a law that would prevent Netanyahu from being indicted if he is the sitting prime minister, because he's currently basically about to be under indictment for like three different crimes. Yeah. And the cases seem very strong, but these parties would much rather have Netanyahu be prime minister and have a right wing government, even if he is a criminal. Yeah. So they all made this kind of pledge, like we'll join the government and we'll pass this law. And the center left said, we'll, we could do a government with you, but we will not support a law that, gives you immunity. Yeah. And so obviously Netanyahu doesn't want that besides all the ideological reasons. Yeah. So it's about his indictment. It's about the ultra Orthodox. It's about like the kind of systemic inability to coalesce. Okay. Interesting. So there's like fragmentation going on. That's what I would be really interested in uh, learning about the most is, is like the, the geography of the Israeli right, because you're talking about, so Lieberman, his party is called, is it called Israel Betenu or something like that? Yeah. Our home, Israel, our home. And so he's, he has a problem with the ultra Orthodox parties. I'd love to know what that is, whether that has to do with Palestine or the conflict or whether it's completely different. If it has to do with exemptions from the armed services, which like Orthodox students get if they're studying in yeshiva, they don't have to go fight in the IDF. Um, so like, what is it, or is it like welfare that's being given to the ultra Orthodox communities? What are the various kind of factions on the right? What are they fighting about? How is Likud orienting itself within those conflicts? All of those kinds of questions would be interesting to me. Yeah, definitely. I'll, yeah. So I'll try to give you that geography or topography of the Israeli right and, and answer each of those questions in succession. Okay. Stop me if you know, something pops up. Okay. So first of all, like, who is this guy Lieberman? And it's really interesting. When I moved 
uh, when I lived in Israel in the early 2000s, um, I was there a lot in 2002, three, and four. Um, Lieberman was the most right-wing member of the of the entire parliament, mm-hmm. and he was such a fringe figure. You know, almost like I don't know Steve King in Congress or something. It, like basically, he was almost on the criminal edge of what was considered acceptable to say, okay. you know, and 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 still be in in politics. And he had been a member of a party that was later declared illegal, which was a, a party led by a rabbi named Mir Kahana that was like oh that one okay. racist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he um, lived in a settlement, and and over time, Lieberman he hasn't changed his views a ton, but the the political spectrum has moved to the right such that Lieberman was the foreign minister in starting in 2009, and he was the uh, defense minister, I think, starting in about 13. And normally those are like the plum, you know, just like in the U.S., you know, those are the, the cabinet positions. The more important the position, the more it's generally given to, like, the serious, respectable politicians. Yeah. You know, like even crazy-ass Trump, you know, made Mattis, who was seemingly, like, the least crackpot of all. Quote-unquote adult in the room, Yeah. The adult in the room. So giving Lieberman the, those posts, which uh, Netanyahu was not happy to do, but he sort of had to because of Lieberman's uh, rising influence. Um, and remind you know, me really quick how long Netanyahu has been in power. It's been since the early 2000s, right? No, 2009. 2000? Exactly. Oh, okay. 10 years. He, did also, he was prime minister also in 96 to 99, but it was a very different time. Um, and, and actually, we will get back to that. But the other interesting thing about Lieberman and this goes for two or three of the other, all the major personalities on the far right used to work for Netanyahu personally. Like Lieberman was basically like a kind of driver aide to him in the late eighties. And they're all people who were, you know, very intimately mentored by him mm. and then broke, broke off from him. And a lot of people say that's because he and his wife are insufferable. And, mm. But also they, I, I think you learn a lot. Uh, I mean, he's really the Tywin Lannister of, of, of Israel and of the Middle East in many ways. And so I think there's a lot to be learned by his side of just playing the game. Yeah, okay. And he tends to raise the people that end up becoming the biggest threats to him. Interesting. Okay. So you're asking, though, about like, so what's the ultra-Orthodox issue that Lieberman is pushing back on? Yeah. And so this, you, you named a number of these cleavages. And this is a thing that Israeli society... Kind of whatever the, the conflict is really at a, a point of stalemate and no one really has any new ideas about what to do. No one wants to make any big moves to the, as far as changing the status quo with the Palestinians. It's often the society, well, I wouldn't even say the society, I would say opportunistic politicians often take that moment to say, we have this incredibly untenable arrangement with the Orthodox where they um, are exempted from compulsory military service and they're given all this welfare and so on and that's bullshit. And that's the thing that even if you're on the left or the right vis-a-vis the Palestinians or, you know, everyone who's not ultra-Orthodox, even modern Orthodox people, the modern Orthodox serve in the military, they're very nationalistic. So from secular to modern Orthodox, from left to right, it's something kind of everyone can get behind is that, you know, we need to make the Orthodox pay their share. And in this case, the draft exemptions is the issue that he's really being gung-ho about but it does seem to be a bit opportunistic and i think part of it is that as the far right the right of everyone to the right of likud has mushroomed and it goes from basically like one or two people um 20 years ago and 30 years ago to now 20 seats of the knesset maybe like a fifth of the knesset is on the far right lieberman needed something to distinguish himself Mm. and this it was kind of like a a loose ball and every you know there was an election in 2013 about this there was an election in 2006 about this. They never solved it because if you take out the ultra-Orthodox, all the parties that remain disagree too much about the conflict. Yeah. So it, so it is actually does relate back to the conflict, you know? Yeah, because without them, I mean, obviously the center-left can't form any coalition. It's going to be Likud is going to be trying to form a, a coalition with someone under almost any circumstances, right? I mean, under most circumstances, and they can either, they can't really form this unity government with the two biggest parties, center right and center left, because of their fundamental disagreement over the conflict. Okay, that makes sense. Although they, they did have in 2009, they were in a government with Labor. In 2013, they were in a government with two other center left parties. Okay, they they do do those things, and the center left has been extremely close. They've been like in, in a few cases, like one Knesset seat, one parliamentary seat shy 
of being able to form a coalition. Wow. So it, it, it's, it's razor thin and there's like more specific um, tricks that Netanyahu has been really good at pulling to, to make sure that the center left can't form a coalition. You were, telling, you were explaining this but, to me where he gets the far right parties to kind of split to just the point where they make it over the threshold mm-hmm. of getting Knesset seats. So that like kind of gobbles up more seats for the far right. Yeah, he wants the, the far right to be numerous enough that they get some seats, but you need to win a certain, I don't know, 100,000 votes. The, the minimum threshold is now is four seats. Oh, okay. You need to win four seats. <laughs> if you don't win four, you can't get gotcha. any. Um, and that's like a one thirtieth of the vote. And so he wants to make sure that the far right parties can, can get above that threshold, but not too much above it because he wants as many right wing voters to come to Likud as possible. Yeah, right. And he's, yeah, it, it, it's complicated and arcane and I'm happy to explain it, but I, I want to let it go further. What, so what else did you ask about? You asked about Lieberman, the draft, the topography of the Israeli right. Well, okay. So how is Likud? So like, what is Likud's position um, and what is Netan? What has Netanyahu been saying about ultra orthodox in their position in Israeli society? If that's really one of the most important, like the, so, so obviously it seems like the most important thing in Israeli politics right now is Netanyahu's fate as a individual, like whether he's going to get indicted or not. But then it seems like this ultra orthodox question is is really important. Um, what has he been saying about that? Where is he? Where do his sympathies seem to lie? That's a great question. It's a question I wouldn't even thought of to ask because he hasn't answered that at all. He has not made neither this election nor the one in April about, oh, well, here's why we actually should give them draft exemptions. What Netanyahu has made these and every previous election about is left versus right. And leftist is a really strong insult in, in Israel these days because it associates you with the failed peace process of the 1990s. And leftists are uh, widely held to blame for the intifada of the early 2000s, which was a wave of suicide bombings and other um, acts of terrorism, a very, very gruesome and traumatizing time, which I think is like vastly, vastly underrated and underspoken of and underappreciated in assessments of the conflict. I think it is the most important thing in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, in my mind, since 1948 was the Intifada. The second Intifada, yeah. The second Intifada. Because of the level of, you know, we had 9-11, say it's the anniversary of 9-11, you know, France had the Charlie Hebdo massacre and then the the one that was in the the multitude of sites. And those were these kind of one-off traumatic mass casualty things. But for four or five years, you know, Israel was having things that were as terrible. It, it was like mass shooting. It's kind of what we're having with the mass shootings, but like you know, it could happen anywhere at any time. But Israel's a very, very small country. So everyone knew someone who had been killed or maimed in suicide bombing or shooting attacks. And they were often the, and, you know, and Hamas was now in charge of Gaza was behind them. And they were often directed not at like military targets, but it was like specifically would be places where there's family and especially places where there were children. Suicide bombers would go on buses and go to where the children were sitting in the back of a school bus and like, you know, or um, bar mitzvahs um, and stuff. So that really radicalized a lot of people. Right word. I think it's, it's interesting that it didn't do it immediately. There wasn't an immediate far right shift in the voting patterns, there was a little bit of a delay if you look at the voting patterns. But it certainly made people believe that trying to negotiate with the Palestinians was a fatal error that took a, took a quote-unquote bad situation, which was, you know, maybe the occupation was bad if you're kind of on the liberal side or untenable or something. But it made it much, much worse, and it revealed, so goes the kind of mainstream discourse, it revealed that the Palestinians don't want a state alongside Israel, they want to kill all Israelis, and I don't subscribe to the mainstream understanding, and I think there's some holes in it, and there was a lot of opportunistic manipulation of people's reactions to take a reaction that is natural and to align it with a political view that's plausible, which is wow, they just killed all these, uh, you know, 21 people in this wedding. 
and to say there is no partner to negotiate with, which is a little bit different because, you know, one suicide bomber doesn't necessarily represent the political leadership. And especially after Yasser Arafat, that changed. But that was more than it was an endorsement of the right. It was the collapse and delegitimization of Mm. the left. What the Netanyahu's and the parties to his right, what they make the elections about um, and what they make their governing terms about, that's probably equally important are all these things, and you'll recognize some of these things because they're taking place in, uh, in other countries, like in Hungary or Poland yeah. or whatever, which is demonization of the media, of um, academia, of um, human rights groups, calls for loyalty, a very aggressive campaign against the judiciary. The judiciary in Israel has typically been, it's much further to the left, than, like much further to the left than the, the mm-hmm. population. And so all these kind of populist cards, which are happening elsewhere for other reasons, and there's kind of a feedback loop there. Well, well if Donald Trump and Boris Johnson are saying it in their country, it's like, why can't we say it in this country? You know, they'll, they'll say that those are all the things that we need to be doing, you know, reducing the power of the media, reducing the power of these quote-unquote traitors who testify to human rights organizations, and vote for us so that we keep doing that. And if you vote for them, you're voting for basically traitors and saboteurs who are going to unravel the state. And so Netanyahu does not go to the court of the orthodox thing. He knows he wouldn't win on that court. He shifts the court to these other issues. Okay, interesting. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about about the current election? You know, a question that you had asked, does this reveal, is this the true face of Zionism, this far-right populist, not even implicitly, but explicitly racist rhetoric that has been very loudly broadcast, not just by Netanyahu, but by, you know, senior ministers in the Israeli government. This rhetoric that you used to hear kind of from people on the political fringe being pursued as policy by the justice minister who was who's named Ayelet Shekhead or the defense minister, Fitz Lieberman. So a lot of critics of Israel are saying, oh, well, this is just what it's always been about. This is Zionism. This is the Israeli state at its core. And it's showing it's like the mass. Yeah, exactly. Off, That's the kind of know? sense that I get a lot is that Net, also Netanyahu and everything, everything he represents, like this is authentic Zionism and that everything that came before, like uh, the center-left, center-left Zionists, the Labor Party, the peace the peace process, all of that was fundamentally untenable and was brought low by its inherent contradictions of, like, the, the inherent contradictions of a liberal Zionist project. And so this is, like, this is it. All the contradictions have been worked out. And what's left is the core uh, of it, which is a, you know, racial project of apartheid and appropriation, annexation, settler colonialism. Yeah. So that's a viewpoint. I disagree with that viewpoint, but it's important to say that they talk about, they use the word Zionism and they talk about like the founding fathers of Zionism a lot on the far right. It's like, it it, it used to be a joke that like in the nineties, you could go up to Israel and be like, are you a Zionist? And like, what the fuck is that? It's like this like obscure political history, Mm -hmm. you know, like I'm an Israeli, you know, you know, Herzl, like who, you know, and I have a very invested viewpoint on this because I wrote a doctoral dissertation on Herzl in large part and, and on um, the ideology uh, and the intellectual histories of Zionism in, it, in the years of its foundation. And so I, so I would say it's very similar to kind of what you're going to be talking about later, which is that modern radicals claiming that they are in possession of the true and authentic strain of their tradition yeah. and that everything until now was corrupt, but they have the real thing. And they also have to do a lot of erasure and skipping of all the years in between and throw the mantle back so far in the past that it's at a time that people don't really know about. So they'll say, oh, this is what Herzl wanted, because most people are not that familiar with Herzl and what he wanted. <laughs> I like having read like every word of his diary, every word the guy ever wrote or published, I can tell you this is extraordinarily far from what mm. he wanted. But so, yeah, that's the claim that they're making. And it's also a claim being made you know, by sort of hardcore critics of Israel. I would just say that, like, you know, Zionism has been around since 1882, political Zion, modern political Zionism is, so that's like 130 years, 140 years, rather, and the state's been around for 70 years. It, it is noteworthy that this stuff didn't really start to come out in the way that it's come out until the last 10 or 15 years. How do you go 105 years holding it in and then it all comes out? I, I don't think that's realistic, and I think it really overlooks, for one thing, it overlooks the fact that this is exactly what's happened in the U.S., Right. You know, Ted Cruz was the most extremist senator, and then it was between him and Trump, who's even more extreme, 
for the Republican nomination, seemingly over now, yeah. right? And I'm going to give you a few, or give the audience a few data points, and then I'm going to, you know, give you my actual analysis okay. and opinion. During the 1990s, Israel was engaged in this, and starting in the early 90s, this thing called the Oslo Peace Process, which was a negotiation with the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization. And the idea was that gradually, and that's a key part of it, that it would be gradual, Israel would cede land in occupied land in the West Bank and Gaza Strip to the Palestinians and ultimately re- resulting in a Palestinian state, a two-state solution. And just to give you some numbers, in 1992, all the parties from labor to the left had 61 seats, and now they have 20. In 1999, which was the, that was the last election during the Oslo process before the process kind of crashed and burned, they had about 50, and again, now they have 20. Wow. So many of these voters were voting left as recently as the 90s. And I'll give you another. In 96, when Netanyahu was first prime minister, there were only two Knesset members to the right of the okay. you know. And now there's it, it varies. It's in the 20s. How did people who were on the margins of politics and the things they were saying and their ideas come into the mainstream? And that's not to say that their, Zionism hasn't had this right-wing side, which has been represented by the Likud party, which generally, until I would say until the 2000s, represented itself as, we're down with liberalism within the state of Israel proper, which is to say minority rights, you know, all the tenets of a liberal political state, basically, you know, these are all, you know, a lot of this leadership are people whose families came from Eastern Europe and were shaped by those political traditions. But we are skeptical that there will ever be a nego- that it's viable to make peace with the Palestinians. And in fact, the intellectual forefounder of, of what became the Likud, Jabotinsky, he, he died before the state was established, but he, he saw himself as an anti-colonialist, and he was like, the Arabs are 100% right to fight for this land, you know, and to view us as a colonial power, but we don't have any other option. And he, he kind of was very clear about what was going to happen in Europe. He predicted the Holocaust, like with, you know, kind of dreadful accuracy and just said, so we basically have to make a little state here and build an iron wall around it. And he had a famous essay called The Iron Wall. So it was more about, the right wing was more about skepticism toward ever being accepted in the Middle East or by the Arab world. But it was not necessarily about going after, you know, artists for being quote unquote disloyal and stuff like that. Um, to the same extent. Or necessarily, like, after the state was established, like, going and occupying further lands where Palestinians were and, like, engaging in this project of whatever you want to call it, apartheid, ethnic cleansing. I mean, I don't really understand, to be honest, what their end game is. There's just this, they just released this plan now to um, propose the annexation of a huge huge part of the, the Jordan Valley, right, in the West Bank. So that's also, would you say, like not, that would be a deviation from the like Zionist tradition that they lay claim to? Would it, I guess, the, the, would it be a deviation from Jabotinsky? I think it's, here would maybe be an interesting way of thinking about it. Because when certainly in, uh, in the lead up to 48, the idea that the religious public would be part of Zionism was out. The religious public was like completely against Zionism. So the idea that there would be, um, if they conquered, if they expanded upon the territory of Israel, that that would be driven by religious Jews who are, think they're furthering the goals of the state was inconceivable until really the seventies when the settler movement took a portion of the religious public and kind of wed them to, to the nationalism of the state. And uh, whereas before they'd been very much kind of like, we're being dragged along to statehood and we'll get what we can out of the state, but we don't believe in the state. So Jabotinsky wanted a state that was on both sides of the Jordan. He wanted a very expansive state because he thought it had to house all the Jews of Europe who would ultimately be... Right, so he was the, the one who expanded the idea of like what... Eretz Israel was supposed to look like, right? And he was saying, well, we need to go on both banks of the Jordan River and everything. Uh, uh, which would be like Jordan now. Yeah, but not at all from a, this is the God, God gave us this land, Bible, any of that stuff, which is, and that's an important distinction because that's the motivating force. Of right, the because that, like the West Bank is really where the ancient kingdom of Israel was centered, right? I mean, like the coastal plain yeah, is most, was like where the Philistines and the enemies of Israel were, right? Precisely. So th- th- there's an interesting, there's maybe two demographic rifts that are, are, are worth drawing here. 
along the coast of Israel, like in ancient times, that's where the non-Jews lived. Like Max was saying, the Jews lived in what's now the West Bank, so a lot of the Jewish biblical history is in the like deep within the occupied West Bank, and that's where the settlers want to live because that's what they're trying to quote unquote bring back to life. Also, along the coast is where most of the economic growth is. The the quote unquote the most progressive, the most you know, it feels like you're in Singapore or um, Hong Kong or or Paris, whatever. That's along the coast. That tends to be more Jews from Eastern and Central Europe in origin who've been in Israel from many, many generations, many, many for, for this project, right? You know, like four or more, you know? And they tend to be the center and left okay. voters. And in the peripheries, the underdeveloped parts of Israel, not so much the settlements, but just the, the parts that are remote from the economic growth and the sort of social progressivism, is where the Jews who were in large part expelled from Middle Eastern countries were placed. And that those Jews, and this is one place where Israel differs very much from the populism of, of the U.S. And, and what's going on in Europe, is the quote-unquote white Jews are more on the left, and the Jews of color, so to speak, they're the backbone of the Likud. They're on the right. Interesting. Okay, so like, and, so, but that would mean more like, like, so Arab, like from from Arab backgrounds mainly. Yeah. Um, so. In, in the in the fifties, late forties, fifties, and sixties, about between like something like six or seven hundred thousand Jews from Arab and Muslim countries were, in some cases, very violently expelled. In some cases, were sort of just lightly coerced to move out of those countries. And most of the Jews of Morocco, of Yemen, of Iraq, Syria came to Israel, and they were not really who the Zionist movement had in mind when they wanted all the Jews to come to Israel. I mean, to be really glib about it, the Zionists who got the project started were hoping for European Jews to come. Most of them were killed in the Holocaust, and this was this is all they had left. And it was and they were very much treated as second class citizens yeah. for decades by the labor establishment. Okay. And, and so as far as their economic development, there is a religious component. They do tend to be more traditionally religious, but they have a much stronger sense of like the ethno-nationalist stuff. That's why it's interesting, the term racism, because the most vehemently ra- racist rhetoric is almost invariably comes from the politicians who are from that, those okay. groups. From the right. but this is and and this is excluding like Ethiopian Jews who are black and who are themselves highly marginalized within Israeli society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although I think like the only most I think the only Ethiopian members of Knesset are are in the right wing okay. far right wing parties too. So there's yeah. a little of the same thing. But so the Likud plays on this thing of like the left abandoned you, hated you, looked down upon you, spit at you, and 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 were the salt of the earth. You know, and we're here to take our vengeance on the left. And it's, and it's almost, uh, well, there's one commentator who called it ancestor worship, voting for the Likud to punish. It's not, you know, if you're 25 years old right now, you, you weren't necessarily treated like shit in 1950. You weren't alive, but your grandparents were, and maybe your parents have, have memories. And, and things might not be as good for you as it is for the people you imagine to be associated with the media and the judiciary and the academy who live in a different place than you and earn more money than you and, and vote differently than you. So there's a, there's a class and a intra-Jewish ethnic racial rift that powers the right okay. wing, and it's and and then there's also this thing of a lot of them, a lot of the rhetoric in, in, in that community will be, you guys don't know the Arabs, but we know them. We lived amongst them. Like we have the authentic take on what they're really like. So the question of who really knows this the region is a big debate, and what state do we want? And they're basically like, we're happy to have a state that's like. The way that it is for Arabs and Arab states, or, or maybe like the Palestinians can have it as rough as maybe Egyptian cops have it, and they're fine with that. You know, a sort of majority rule, minority, not as many rights okay, state. Interesting. Um, but by the way, everything I'm saying, I would be like screamed at as racist. They're just like, oh, you're just like a white liberal racist who's Ashkenazi on both sides, which <laughs> I am. I'm not, I'm yeah, not you're a racist. Okay, we've established racist. that. But so do you have another question that has been raised by me? I have a final question. I want to hear your takeaway, and then I have a question about um, American Jews. But go, you go first. Okay, so basically what I would say, as, as I mentioned earlier, there's global trends that are powering far rights, 
throughout democracies. And I wouldn't even call them peripheral democracies because, I mean, the U.S., England, like, all the democracies are dealing with this. Social media, I think, is a huge engine of this. And I think before social media, there were always Israelis who had these viewpoints. There were always Israelis who had racist and, like, even genocidal views toward Arabs. A lot of them were religious settlers, but they were kept out. The institutions of the media and in the political establishment kept them outside of acceptable discourse. And that, I believe, collapsed during the 2000s. And I think social media is a huge part of its collapse. That makes sense. You know, but the other thing is, is like I said, I think the intifada, um, this is not just, this will sound like Israeli apologetics. It's not apologetics because I don't think everything that the Israeli governments or that the way the majorities have voted is okay. I don't agree with the big policy things like, like, I mean, across the board, but I think that the motivation is not something inherent in Zionism that like, I don't think, I think Zionism does have a tension where as with every nationalism there, once you identify the ethno ethnic group, that is that nation. There's always going to be a tension between how that group asserts their sovereignty, even culturally and economically in all these different ways, and the group that's not associated with the nation. And on the far extreme left solution would be, quote, a state of all its citizens, which is like where Jews aren't privileged at all. And I understand, I kind of theoretically would be like, well, that's equal. But I understand why they're like, well, why do Jews not get a a state where our nationality is the defining nationality the way that the French and the Polish and the Japanese and everyone else get them, Mm -hmm. you know? And that why not is a really powerful hook, I think, even for people who aren't necessarily committed to a racial hierarchy or they don't want to dispossess every single Palestinian or anything like that. But they do think that there are certain marks of, of self-determination that Jews should have just like everyone else. And it's right in that gray area that things can slide from a seemingly acceptable point to like really crazy, if not endorsing some of these, you know, fascistic political leaders, at least you know, if you vote for Likud, you may not agree with all of them, but you certainly are accepting them. And that's a big problem. I think also in the Republican party, obviously there's a lot of Republican voters who don't, agree with Trump and they're not at the rallies like, you know, calling for children to be like ripped away from their parents, but they are 100% not standing in the way. You know, they're, they're fellow travelers. And I think it's the fellow traveler phenomenon that's the most mm. dangerous, not the mask coming off and the true self coming out. This electorate, this last thing I'll say, is so divided and the right wing of the electorate, even at its peak, has never won much more than half. So half of this electorate, if you include all the Israeli Arabs, Palestinian citizens of Israel who often don't vote because they feel disenfranchised, it's almost more than half don't endorse the right. It's just the right is very good at using the half of the electorate that does vote for them to wield a slightly disproportionate amount of power. And the left has never been able to recover and to offer, um, and this is where there's this inherent contradiction that they haven't been able to resolve, to offer a view that is, we are going to be we're committed to liberalism, and also we have a solution to the conflict with the Palestinians. The best that the left's been able to do is say, we'll try to act like nice liberals here, and we'll let the occupation go on. We won't make it get worse, but we're not going to um, solve it either because we don't know how to solve it. And that you know, has been less convincing than, than Netanyahu, who has a very confident worldview. Okay, know? that makes sense, yeah. And and that kind of, um, this failure of the, the left or the center left to provide an alternative kind of brings me to my question, which is about American Jews and their relationship to Israel. I think it's a, a moment of great flux, like kinds of things are kind of hanging in the balance um, because it's, you have on the one hand, you have kind of more right wing uh, American Jews. Like you could say like Sheldon Adelson would be a, a rich version of that who are like gung-ho, Israel Israeli Hawk. hawks, like they support the Israeli right. Then I would say a bigger group of Jews who at least at some point in their life were what you would call liberal Zionists who supported the idea, like you said, like they, they can't really give up the idea that the Jews should have a state and that like the Zionist project is a worthwhile thing. But 
would oppose many of the specific policies or specific governments and politicians of Israel. So it'd be like, you know, American Jews who kind of support Israel, the idea of Israel existing, but they don't support Netanyahu, for example. And there's been a lot of talk recently about that position becoming untenable and the idea Mm -hmm. that American Jews need to either admit that they are supporting that Israel is Netanyahu Likud, the far right, the settler project, annexation, everything that the, all that entails. If you support Israel, you support that. By the way, I don't think the annexation, I think, is most people, most analysts think that that's a like a, a vain promise to okay. get people to the polls. Um, but in any case, like anyway, a long term project of having a subject yeah. people, which is obviously like a repellent idea um, to, to some people who consider themselves to be liberals. So there's mm-hmm. two options there. One is to say I'm getting off this I'm getting off this bus I am not going to continue to have any kind of allegiance or identification with the Zionist project I'm going to sever yes. like my Jewish identity from that whole thing um, so that would be like I'm raising my hand right now um, or there would be the <laughs> the position of like well we still need to continue to support this idea of a liberal Zionism and liberal American support for a critical support whatever solidarity with with Israel and to help somehow the Israeli left and to also kind of have a some kind of vision for uh, a political future, better future for the Palestinian people as well. And so I was wondering what your thoughts are. Yeah. So you made the mistake of giving me some time to think about it. And yeah. so I, <laughs> I a few different parts of a take to, to that thing. You know, what can American Jews do? I think the number one thing was like, don't elect Donald Trump. Like, Netanyahu's gambled everything and, and risked the whole relationship by opposing Obama, who was you know, a very popular American president. And Netanyahu basically kind of like spit in his face like numerous times, metaphorically speaking. And Netanyahu was a huge line of attack against him was you are jeopardizing this relationship. And regardless of what we're supposed to do with the Palestinians, like America is too important and you can't fuck with them so much. And Trump reversed all of that. And Trump took all these really important cards that America has been holding. So basically, the Palestinians don't have any cards to play. And that's why if there's ever a final negotiation, a final agreement, the cards that Israel's going to get won't be from the Palestinians. They don't have anything to offer um, because they're stateless and they don't have control over territory. It will come from the international community. One of those cards was the capital being in Jerusalem. Or another was maybe recognizing the Golan. And Trump just gave those away. So now the international community has like no cards to give Israel in exchange for peace. So the best thing Americans can do for Israel is like not elect Republicans. Because <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. um, that, that makes a huge difference. I'll, I'll read you a quote, if I may. It's yeah. about a different thing, but it's by a, a guy named Rabbi David Gordas. He was saying... Now, in the 1960s, this is the quote, in the 1960s, how otherwise progressive Israelis maintained deeply sexist views. Today, Israel is one of the more advanced societies in its recognition of women's rights and in its acceptance of gays and lesbians. These changes did not originate in Israel, but in a fundamental transformation of consciousness in the Western world, to which Israel still looks for military, intellectual, and cultural support. So that's just about like gender and sexuality. But, you know, when the West goes populist and fascist, you're going to see, you know, it's a wave and it's going to wash up in Israel. If the rest of the world is in a more liberal democratic mode, that's also going to have an influence, at least. You know, Israel can't survive Mm. without allies. And so the behavior of the allies, I think, is very important. If I could change one thing about Israel, Israeli society, it would be to recognize on a much deeper level the Palestinian narrative and and the rights of the Palestinians to the land. But the last time there was a major movement in the 90s, you know, imagine if in America, like Cornell West was made like secretary of education and, you know, like Judith Butler was like secretary of state. That's what the Israeli Oslo governments were like. And they changed their textbooks. The entire culture went through a a cultural revolution toward peace and it blew up in their face. Okay. But I mean, a lot of people would maybe like would object to what you just said because it's like, I mean, Yitzhak Rabin, Ehud Barak, like these guys, were they really like, so they were left wing within Israel, but they had been like military commanders in wars fought against 
But that's who you're going to make peace with, right? Like, so Arafat was the head of the PLO and like a quote unquote arch terrorist, right? But you're you're like that's yeah, but you're portraying them as the left wing. I, I, like, well, no, I, I'm I'm more talking about like Yossi Balin and Yossi Sari, the guys who actually wrote who who led the negotiations and were education minister and justice minister, okay. respectively. Okay, because that's like where the cultural change was taking place. I'm talking about pop music. I'm talking about movies. I'm talking about just bumper stickers. It, it wasn't just a matter of who's the prime minister. The reason that Ehud Barak was able to go to Camp David, the settler party was in his government, in his coalition, when he was at Camp David offering a state in 95% of the West Bank with East Jerusalem as its capital. Imagine that. The settler party was in that coalition because that's how shifted the the map was at that time toward territorial compromise. There's a totally a counter narrative of, oh, but the settlements were were still growing and blah, blah, blah. And, and And their counter narrative has, you know, Things were not changing on the ground for the for the average Palestinian. I totally recognize that. I'm not here to deny that. I, I accept that thoroughly. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what what is feasible either. But I mean, most observers say that the two state solution is dead now. So I mean, it's kind of a question of what, like, it, that's the whole problem for me. Is like you have either a one-state solution, like, well, varieties of one-state solution. One would be, like, the continued subjugation of Palestinian population, um, and they never get uh, self-determination or political, political civil rights, or this um, supposed, yeah, or this other, like, the left-wing idea of a one-state solution. It could also be the one-state solution that people on the far left want, where it's just everyone's equal and, and stuff, but, like, but that stuff can happen. I mean, it's it, there. There have been examples of like long-term, you know, seemingly intractable ethnic religious um, violence that have, you know, they've found solutions to it. I mean, like often after like genocides, like Rwanda. And, yeah, of but course, I think, but, but you know, I think the Jew, the, the fact that Israel is basically a, a weird like melting pot of Jewish refugees who have then coagulated into a, a polity that sees itself as like one nationality against the Palestinians. Although of course, like I said, it's riven by its own ethnic and religious um, distinctions within the Jewish polity. I know the idea of like Rwanda where Hutus and Tutsis don't even identify as Hutu and Tutsis now and they create this like super identity. I think that's a good goal. You know, what's pos- what's the soonest way to alleviate all the bad parts of the occupation? You know, I think that's another way of approaching it. Well, can we stop expanding settlements? Can we stop having apartheid roads? Can we stop having military incursions into people's houses and property seizures and daily horrors of the occupation such that um, Palestine can become a viable national and civil society? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I think we both agree, um, at least <laughs> that that is the that is the goal. That's what we hope could can you know is on the horizon somewhere is like full civil rights in political self-determination for the Palestinian people. Um, I don't think that there's any um, acceptable... Anything short of that is unacceptable. I agree with yeah. that. I think there's a gap between the American Jewish community or even just the non-Israeli world and the Israeli world. Whether you're a kind of liberal American, goes to synagogue, like likes Israel, but really doesn't like this occupation stuff, or you're like completely against Israel. There's this... The idea that we're always deciding the fate of the Zionist project and Zionism and Israel's right to exist. Like no other, where are these like right to exist given out, you know, like where's the right to exist store and like Slovenia got it. And like, yeah, yeah. you know, Palau has it, but Israel it's, it's still on the table. And, and I think we all should, everyone should just banish the word Zionism because it's an ideology about a time period that has passed. It's about founding the state. Now we're talking, I think we should all, speak in terms of an existing state and its policies and, you know, what type of relationship should people outside of that state have to it? You know, like there's a diaspora from India, there's a diaspora from Pakistan. There's many states that there's diasporas with meaningful ties and, you know, investments, Iran, you know, about like the state and whether its form should change. But I, I don't like that we're holding court on the whole thing because when you think of Israelis, when they're thinking of this, what are they thinking of? They're thinking of like, the highway that they're driving on, the school that they send their kids to, um, you know, the place where they go camping and whatever. And those have been the same for, we're like four or five generations into this. 
And of course there's the Palestinian thing of, Oh, well they're actually camping in the ruins of my old village. And I think that's extraordinarily important. That's the second half of my dissertation. But we do have to recognize that Israelis live in a fully inhabited national reality, just like any other, every human on earth is in a national reality right now. It's in a nation. So it doesn't really help to like put that on trial. Are you, well, you don't have to agree with me, but do you know, does that make sense at least? That makes sense conceptually, but there's still the question of like continuing to support the project of the Israeli state and the idea of the Israeli state's future as like a quote unquote Jewish democracy, or if you support other kinds of of ideals, or if you have to like have some kind of specific solution to the problem that you do support, you know what I mean? I mean, you're still kind of putting it on the table of like Israel as a Jewish state, as, as, as like that's being put on the table in a way that we're not putting like Poland as a Polish state on the table. I think maybe the better way of saying it is Israel as a country that is still militarily occupying millions of people who are not citizens of that country. It's bare terms. Yeah. Know? Okay. But there's a little bit of presentism to your question, I think. And it disregards the history that the movement toward a Jewish state or toward, first it was just toward Jewish self-determination within really the Ottoman Empire for mm-hmm. 30 years. That's important. They didn't settle on it beginning the nation state till 1942. And then I can go through all these different junctures during the conflict um, with the various Arab states where, like, you know, for example, they conquered the territories in 67 and the policy was, we're waiting for a phone call. That's what the defense minister Moshe Dayan said. We're waiting for a phone call from the Arab governments, you know, to give them back. And the Arabs league met in Khartoum, Sudan and said, we will never negotiate, we'll never recognize Israel, we'll never give peace. And the settlements didn't start immediately. They weren't like, all right, everyone move in. That was, for 10 years, there was no settlement. And then it very gradually started, you know, with a ripple and then a crack and then, you know, really didn't get going to the 80s, you know, 20 years into the occupation. So I think it's ahistorical to look at the current arrangement and just say we have to raise our hand for it or against it. You know, yeah, of course I'm against the current arrangement. So obviously there's like a bunch of space still left between the two positions of like Sheldon Adelson, right wing American Zionist foaming at the mouth. And then on the other hand, BDS supporting total anti-Zionist. But I'm wondering what your take on that is. But to get to the more fundamental question is like, why do American Jews who are put off by the occupation and by the fact that it just decade after decade, there's always conflict and it doesn't end. It's, it's enough to just look at it from afar and say, this looks like it's not a fair fight. I don't agree with being on the side of the Israelis who have this super overpowering military against this stateless Palestinian people, and I'm out. I'm, I'm off the bus. And Israel can, for such a person, they might just say, you know, it can just be another country. It can just be like a Russia or a Turkey or a whatever. Why do I, as an American Jew, have, have to look at its behavior with any more of an investment than I look at any other state? And I think that that's a great question, and that's a question that I want to dive into. And one is just that not to be ahistorical and not to look at 2019 and say, I don't like this, so I'm out because well, how did we get to 2019? How did we get from the 1990s when there's two members of the Knesset to the right of Netanyahu to now when there's, you know, dozens? How did we get from the Oslo process to the nation-state law? There is a layered history, and the status quo of today did not come out of a vacuum, and and to, to think otherwise is ahistorical. But on a deeper level, someone could say, well, I don't need to deal with all that history. I don't need to think about what happened in 67 or 1982 or, you know, I don't need to think about all the times that the Israeli left was, quote unquote, trying to make peace. I'm an American Jew and being Jewish here in America, it seems to be, that person might say, a resolved issue. And why do I have to deal with this place where being Jewish has been unresolved ever since the Zionist Jews showed up there? That's a really reverberating question. Do we, do you, do I want to deal with modern Jewish life? Because half the Jews in the world, more than half of them live in Israel. And the condition of living in Israel is a condition of displacement. They, they were displaced, many of them not by choice, or in fact, by the vast majority of Israeli Jews uh, are descended from people who arrived there not by choice. You know, hundreds of thousands of them 
were refugees from the Holocaust who literally had nowhere else to go, and had they not gone there, they would have certainly died. Hundreds of thousands of them fled to what was then Palestine after the Holocaust when no other country would take them. In no other country by the way, is uh, we should be a little self-indicted. That was a moment of American isolationism. And even American Jews were, there was an isolationist streak of, quote-unquote, not getting involved in the fate of Jews abroad. So Jews came to be in that place because of a lot of very specific Jewish stuff that it's really hard to, that's where it becomes hard to compare it to any other country, whether, you know, some sort of model Scandinavian, Belgium, Switzerland, or China, Turkey, borderline first world, borderline illiberal country. The one thing that that is dissimilar from every other place that I can think of is the fact that Jews came to be in this place through a very specific Jewish history in the 20th century, a Jewish history of basically the failure of the entire world to accommodate the minority existence of Jews in any other place and as a minority in any other place. That's how the obsession with being a majority in Palestine came to be. And this is something that, you know, Hannah Arendt wrestled with it, you know, Walter Benjamin wrestled with it. Uh, Many of the great Jewish thinkers of the mid-20th century wrestled with this of, is the fate of modern Jewish life? And it's impossible to be invested in that without being invested in what will happen to the society of Jews who have gone to Palestine and now who have live in a nation state in Palestine. So instead of sort of starting with the nation state and I don't like this nation state, I don't like its form of government, I don't like the prime minister of the last 10 years, I think it's starting from the outside in. And if you really want to start at the core of the issue, we have to deal with the nation state aspect of this. That wasn't always the plan, but Jews went to Palestine in a colonial era and Could they have established a society without the colonial dimension? I mean, certainly colonialism is reflected in the society that was built there, in the Israeli state, in militarism, in its response to the opposition of the local Palestinian population to their immigration there. But does the existence of Jewish society in the modern world, basically outside of America or in the Middle East, depend upon colonialism, depend upon militarism? Could we imagine something else? I think those are questions worth being invested in. Even though the Israeli nation state, the foundations for it were laid in a colonial era and it has taken on colonial forms, legal forms, and its relationship to the Palestinians, there have also, throughout its history, been alternative visions that have tried to enact egalitarian relationship with the the Palestinians. So it kind of kicks up to a larger point, which is, can a nation be people from another place? Can people from another place form a nation in another place without that being colonial, without subjugating the native people? So can the the newcomers, the immigrants, form a community in another place without either subjugating others or being subjugated by the local population? And these are all things that I think, not just Jews, but anyone kind of concerned with the minority condition, with the massive displacements of the 20th century, which are, you know, now we live in another era of massive national collective displacements. And all the norms that we could just say, oh, I don't want to deal with that. I just want to, you know, go to sleep in my bed and live in, like, wrap myself in the blanket of liberal norms. I think those norms are once again being called into question by the type of displacement that produced a Jewish society in Palestine and, you know, is now going to produce other societies in places very far from the, you know, native lands of the people being displaced. And, you know, how will they integrate into the regions where they will end up and what forms of government will they have? What will their relationships be to the quote unquote host populations? You know, how will equality be uh, enacted between them? I think that those are questions that that concern everyone. And and that should be, to me, points of engagement. Whether you're a friend of the Jews or an anti-Semite, you know, if you're an anti-Semite, if you think that there's something defective or suspicious or unnatural about Jews as a collective, how could you not look at this place and be obsessed with it? 
And if you are Jewish or uh, you think that Jewish civilization has something unique to offer the world and that Jews should embody some noble values or at least not make each other look bad, how could you not be obsessed with what happens for that reason? And so, you know, I think it's absolutely right that we object to the Israeli state's colonialism, its militarism, but there are many elements of Jewish life in Israel that do not depend exclusively on colonialism or militarism. You know, this is also a place where Jewish culture is represented in language, in the arts, in education, and it incorporates strains of Jewish life from all over. So you have the revolutionary socialist strand, you know, that came from founding fathers of Israel, from the early 20th century Russian Jews. You have European cosmopolitanism from the Weimar German Jews. You have a Middle Eastern cosmopolitanism brought by the Iraqi Jews. And we were speaking also about um, distinctive religious cultures and religious traditions, uh, whether it's the Yemeni or the Moroccan or the Ethiopian Jews, each one distinct in its own right, and trying to find a way to adapt those elements of Jewish tradition to the modern world. These are all, to my mind, questions that have implications for displaced groups and minorities outside of Israel and outside of the Middle East, but are also compelling when thinking about what Jewish life will be in in the future. But uh, we should probably move on to the next segment. <laughs> 